0: Welcome to Her Deepest Ecologies, the podcast. I am your host, Jessica Gigo. We are at a turning point on this planet and in this country. In conversation with a wide range of artists, makers, creators, and caretakers, this podcast takes on two fundamental and interconnected questions. How do we care for ourselves and each other, how do we nurture the earth? Let's find out what these luminaries have to say. Hello, welcome to season one, episode one of Her Deepest Ecologies. For this first episode, I was very excited to be in conversation with Valerie Seagrest. Valerie is an enrolled member of the Muckleshoot Indian Tribe and co-founder of Tahoma Peak Solutions. She earned her bachelor's degree in human nutrition and health sciences from Bastyr University and her master's of arts degree in environment and community from Antioch University. She has dedicated her work in the field of nutrition and human health science towards the efforts of the food sovereignty movement and catalyzing food security strategies rooted in education, awareness, and overcoming barriers to accessing traditional foods for tribal communities throughout North America. I first met Valerie when we were both working at the Northwest Indian College. In 2009, she worked with her community to launch the Muckleshoot Food Sovereignty Project, a grassroots effort towards increasing access to traditional foods ...within the Muckleshoot community. In our conversation, we explore the two main questions of this podcast. How do we care for ourselves and each other? And how do we nurture the earth? And we also take some forays into her time as a chef judge... ...on the Hulu special Chef vs. Wild. What she's taught her daughters about nettles and plants and harvesting... ...and what her role is as a Native woman in being an educator... As well as a knowledge holder within her community. I hope you enjoy our conversation.
1: Tahoma Peak Solutions is a Native women owned firm that specializes in strategic communications and food systems work uh, in tribal communities throughout the country and we started it because we we're really seeing this need in the like interstitial space of grassroots efforts happening in tribal communities and people wanting to support that but not quite knowing how to show up or how to approach or how to get a call back <laughs> so so we are you know filling that gap it was a Hypothesis, and we've been open for a little over a year now, and it has been a very busy year. So it's it's pretty cool um, to have that that kind of guessing of you know filling a need in tribal communities, and really that's what we're at the core trying to do is just catalyze and amplify the very important work. That native people are doing to steward and advocate, manage their their lands, and um, and recognizing that it's really going to take all of us to fix this. So, how do we bring everybody in in a good way?
0: I mean, that's really building on so much of the work that you've already done, and I'm familiar with, you know, some of the books that you've published: feeding the people, feeding the spirit, um, feeding seven generations. How? how do you feel like you're best reaching people when it comes to food sovereignty? Like what, what sort of forms of, of media and, and outreach?
1: I think it's been really cool to watch it change over the years. This began with like in-person classes in the forest on like schlepping the shores. You've been to those classes with us and led some of them with us Um, and has throughout the years, moved into more writing and, you know, writing of books and resources and materials, and then it moved to curriculum development, which has become this behemoth of a project we've been working on for a long time, but has seen, you know, early learning curriculums and K-12 and co- informal community type of, uh, curriculum around food work and medicine work in tribal communities really come to the surface. Now it got really, I think, popularized by social media. Facebook is where a lot of Native people are communicating about their work. Um, and then more recently, you're seeing more appearances on television. So it's interesting how food has become part of the increasing of visibility of Native people in these spaces. And that that's really like part of our healing journey is to be visible um, because invisibility is, uh, you know, a product of colonialism and sort of the erasure of native people in um modern contemporary american culture is what promotes the ability to swallow up land and um and do whatever capitalism wants to do in our spaces (laughs) so we're really just trying to follow the work and i think answer the call when it comes to when it comes to um promoting visibility
0: and I, I'd love to talk about the show a little bit later too. Um, but I'm I'm really interested because you've always really been uh, such a public face f- um, for food sovereignty. And I've you know as a non-native person, I've really appreciated what I've learned from you. And it sounds like you know what you're working on. What you're working on now is ways that people can help and engage that is actually useful, <laughs> and in preserving uh, knowledge and culture and not taking away from it, but also bringing people together in, in new and interesting ways. Um, is that, does that sound right?
1: Yeah, I think so. Part of, you know, I think for so long, our, our story has been, um, has sort of told this ongoing story of, we're not relevant. We should you know, we're not right. That's what most Native people inherently feel. And uh, what we find now with with more ecological knowledge being um, considered in scientific spaces <laughs> is that we carry a lot of ecological knowledge, and we do have answers to some of these challenges um, that we're seeing in our in our global culture and society. And that I think is more, is way more validating for our people. And it's big and it's part, that's why I say it's part of the healing journey for us because not everybody's ready to feel seen or feel safe in those spaces. But we also, if we're not showing up, um, it makes us really vulnerable to people utilizing our knowledge and saying it's theirs and copywriting it for their own use in what's ultimately a good thing but um not correctly citing where it comes from so it's kind of this catch like we we just want to live our lives but we also really need to be people really need to know that we still exist and that we have something to offer that we are we have value in in our culture and and we are also still really learning to to gather collective confidence in that. And so it's it's kind of a really scary, uncharted place to go, but it, we're trying to keep up with the world and and its structures and what it demands of us while also still being rooted in culture. And that can sometimes be really oppositional. Like for example, we're taught to be really humble and have great humility. And so for people who are trying to say, this is our knowledge. It's just juxtaposed of, you know, what we're taught in our culture. It's, it pushes back on those values and boundaries that we have. Um, yeah, I hope that makes sense. I feel like I was meandering a lot. No,
0: it does. Well, actually, I feel like that, response. that's interesting to hear you say that because it feels like that's a very delicate line to, to walk as an educator in the world in terms of what it's
1: really it's really complicated it's what takes so long to develop the curriculum the knowledge and the information and stuff that we pull together it's all there but it's the filtering of what's ethical to share and what's going to be you know a safe place and how do we build in systems where people are accountable to accessing this this information Um, those things are really difficult and innovative we don't see them anywhere so we're sort of making them up and trying to create them with what we have the best of what we have at the time. Um, so for example, we have a a portal that we're launching with all of our curriculum, which spans from a K-12 again, the K-12 work around native plants in the Northwest to, um, Healthy beverages for tribal communities to the Cedar Box Teaching Toolkit, which is our um, response to the Washington state's mandate to teach tribal history and culture in schools, and we really wanted to see native foods included in that so we developed out that that toolkit. All that's going to be on a portal, but in order to access the portal, you have to watch a five minute video, which interviews people who are asking, um, and really explaining like the knowledge that you're about to receive and what that receive access to and what that, um, entails like your responsibility for receiving it. And then there's like 13 questions in a quiz that you have to answer so that you are sort of being, they're questions like. Should you take this information and make a product and sell it in the market? Yes or no. <laughs> you know. And if you don't get the right amount of answers and you don't get access to the portal, and that's all we're asking for. We're not asking for compensation. We're not asking for anything else. We just want people to think about their uh, responsibilities to receiving this information, and that is to keep it safe and to not capitalize on it.
0: Hmm. That's really that seems like a great piece to have on there. And is that when you talk about launching, is that launching on your Tahoma Peak Solutions website, or is that through a different agency? It's a
1: standalone website, okay. but we'll be promoting it through Tahoma Peak Solutions. Okay. Also, um, yeah, a couple of other um websites. The Grub website, Garden oh. Raised Bounty, we'll have a a link there. And then Feed Seven Generations, which is a nonprofit. Um, that we launched several years ago, they'll be also promoting the the website.
0: Okay. Well, I, I want to talk a little bit about food just because I've, you know, in my life, I've always been passionate about food and it was such a revelation to think about just where food comes from and how you grow it yourself. And that's, you know, to been, been a journey for me. Um, but when I got to a place where I felt like I had a pretty good understanding of food and farming. That's when I was introduced to food sovereignty and sort of the long tradition of being in a place and being in relationship with food and and, and the landscape and having the food and the landscape be one as well. Um, and so it's interesting to me to hear about, um, you know, just the carefulness and the consideration that you're putting into as well as the generosity um, and sharing this information and making it known while also um, sort of protecting it at the same time. And I I just, I'm curious about, uh, I know that you're sort of out in the world and in conversation with a lot of food people. And I'm just curious how you navigate that or if there's any particular relationships, whether it's with farmers or other kind of food people that you find particularly helpful to you and, and what you're trying to do.
1: Oh, man, I... I love all of them. <laughs> I there's something so special about a fisherman and the way you know, and a fisherwoman, the way they do their work and carry their work. Um, I've worked a lot with chefs over the years. There's just this re- beautiful culinary arts um, renaissance happening in throughout North America and globally um just really valuing the first foods of this country and how tasty they are and how they're found on every menu and just sort of overlooked like we need to be more like the Italians you know they're so proud and like brag about their food and will write nasty letters to the government if they mess up a carbonara rest- recipe like how do we be like that so i've seen <laughs> that happen more and more through chefs and what they're putting on the plate and how they're designing their menus Chefs like Nephi Craig from the White Mountain Apache tribe, who's also working with um, uh, folks in recovery from addiction and trauma. And um of course, like Sean Sherman from Minneapolis. Well, he's um from South Dakota, um, Pine Ridge, but his Awamni restaurant is in Minneapolis. He works alongside Dana Thompson, who is they're just incredible. I mean. I love these people. We can, we have for years sort of traveled around um, doing demos and lectures together. And so have built, you know, some really strong foundational friendships on our visions for Indian country, how to repair our, our system. And then there are also like the lawyers and the thinkers out there. There's like a whole school of Native agricultural lawyers who are doing incredible work. And I spent some time working with them at the Native American Agriculture Fund um, for a couple of years. And it felt so um, empowering to like, like understand Native law and sovereignty through and food work through that lens and, um, and really spend time thinking about that level of advocacy. So it's interesting. It's like, so many different pollinators in the system and they we all have so much passion for the work. And I think it's because like as Native people, that's how we have always been, like at a very young age, pre-contact, we would have been mentored and groomed into like maintaining and holding this knowledge around food and then transmitting it to the next generation and becoming that expert in whatever it is your family knowledge carried. And I think we still are very much designed that way inherently. These are, our we can, we, it's very clear that this is our birthright and it's all we would want to do with our life. And so when we can find a way to make that career and not just job, but lifestyle um, happen, it is so powerful and enriching and such a good life to live so I, I i know i'm like a really busy person but i love saying that this is what i have to do this is what i have and this is what i have to do like because i was born to do this work yeah. and i see that with so many people who are doing this work
0: oh, i love that i know i mean food is is joy i mean I, I feel like that i always come back to that you know especially on days when i'm just either like frustrated with how the <laughs> the world is working or something is eaten, something in my garden. I go back to just remembering. <laughs> like that's really what brings me the most joy is, you know, being able to to have a good food and share it. And it really is a privilege too. You mentioned chefs. I do have to ask about uh Chef versus Wild, which is your Hulu show that you are the judge on and I, I, I found this show really fascinating I don't want to spend too much time talking about it but I, I'm because I'm a little bit of a fangirl but <laughs> oh. but I'm just curious how how that started how you were approached and got involved in that and and what do you think the impact of that show is going to be um
1: I got I was approached through an Instagram message <laughs> And I thought like the name was really funky, name this casting agent. And I thought it was like a Russian bot or something. So I didn't like pay any attention to it. And then I thought, oh, I better research this person. So I did. And she's real. And it was a real ask. And so I responded. And it was on like the last day of casting. And they were looking for someone who was a Native person who knew about wild foods and had a background. Um, with public speaking. And so I kind of fit the, like it was just this really random miraculous event that happened. And all of a sudden, like within a couple of days, I had an offer to live in um, on the sunshine coast in seashell territory for eight weeks (laughs) and leave my family, um, which was the hardest decision to make. And also knowing that this was probably once in a lifetime opportunity and I should take it um and so I did and I have great I'm really proud of that show I think what I didn't expect was that there would be such uh incredible Native presence there's a Native person in every episode um me included but there's also a Native person in every role uh so I think there's like two episodes that does not you know does not include a survivalist or a chef as a a Native person but um that is rare. It has never happened before in those, rea- in those TV spaces for survivalist shows or cooking shows. And so to have them combined and have such a great representation, I'm pretty, pretty proud of that. And um, what I hope people see is that nature has so much power to transform us. That's what happens in every episode with every single person there. They walk away with some sort of new perspective on life. I mean, they've been immersed for four days in the wild, uh, having to make decisions like during the winter season, which is still like there's food there, but it's not springtime, right? Just like where nettles and beautiful spring grains are out. like none of that's out. Um so there's a scare of an idea of scarcity and they have to choose between whether they're going to eat them, eat their food themselves or save it to feed me. (laughs) And, And I'm like, how can I be any, like in our cultural way, you never, when someone presents food to you like that, especially out of coming out of such a rites of passage, you know, opportunity, you don't, scoff at it or say anything bad about it and honestly I had nothing bad to say because it was all super delicious and a lot of it I'd never tried before in that way so I wasn't complaining at all just really in awe of people and their courage and bravery to be able to do and making that sacrifice so that I could have this incredible gourmet meal with all my favorite foods on the plate it's like how could I have said no to that opportunity <laughs> but I hope that people see that that when you go through a transformation, um, it's not always graceful. So people aren't always in their best mood, ready for camera. They can be grumpy. They may come off like a jerk.
0: Season one or (laughs) episode one, that chef, man, I could not (laughs) handle that guy. (laughs) That
1: is everybody's hands down experience. (laughs) Like feedback to me was, man, that guy. Um, and the reality is like it was tough for him. It was tough for a lot of people. There we had like some of the biggest snowstorms were happening during that time and some of the biggest flood flooding was happening. Bears were everywhere. Like it was intense conditions for them. And I just remember sitting in my hotel room thinking, "Man, that's a bummer for those guys." <laughs> <laughs> um, and also really I myself really did want to like Put me in. Karen and I talked about that often. Like, hey, if we run out of, if we run out of teams, like, put me in Valen. <laughs> so uh, we thought it would be fun, but because I could do four days, I don't think I could do any more than that, really. Yeah. And I would need, like, I would need Karen to to be there too, or yeah, somebody who is really knowledgeable. So
0: yeah, yeah. Well, I think it really, I mean, in a, a fairly short time frame, it you know it shows. Like you said, a transformation, but also just um, the struggle of you know how do you actually you kind of get a sense of scarcity and you know how do you actually you know take care of yourself in such a wild space and then all of a sudden they're in these this beautiful outdoor kitchen creating this very artful food which all of it looked so delicious I was <laughs> maybe that show makes me really hungry um, <laughs> but you know I think a lot of people don't you know. That That's still just sort of an uphill battle in terms of, under, you know, getting people beyond convenience to know what it really takes to, to either gather or grow food and then, no, to, you know, to know what to do with it and to be able to repeat that every day. Right. Because it's, um, you know, it's sometimes I have, you know, as as you do, I have two little kids and sometimes it's like, you know, we're going to have noodles again tonight because <laughs> there's just yeah. isn't time. You know, I mean, we we're all kind of making compromises around food. But uh, I feel like that show really documents such a great, like beginning to end process of, of food and the people and the food is transformed.
1: 100%. And people, all of them have said, all the chefs have said that they will think of their food sources so differently now that just to covet like, and really value the thing that that tiny trout they harvest or, you know what I mean? Like what a big deal it was for them so I wish that there would have been like five more minutes per episode to tell more stories about the pure, like to your point, the joy of when they do find something like the, when Nico got the cauliflower mushroom, it was like a big deal. And for some people on, there was a lot of people on set that have that, like in the wild kind of background all the time had never seen that before, you know, if they could have just told a little bit more of that story, I think people would really get, it would really drill it in, like how excited we were at these ingredients. Um, but hopefully that comes out already because yeah, my foods make me so happy that <laughs> it was just pure joy to be able to eat and an honor to be able to eat what they were putting in front of us.
0: Yeah. Well, I really appreciate it. you. I feel like you always had a good, um, piece of information to share or comment on the food at the end, which I feel like really grounded the competition. <laughs> um, so I, I learned a lot from you on that show specifically. Um, well, I I kind of want to, um, I don't want to, I know we could have a, a very long conversation about motherhood because my, my daughters are five and seven. How old are your, you have two daughters, is that right?
1: Yes, eight and nine years old. Oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah, it goes so fast. Jess, I can't believe it.
0: I know. I know. My youngest just started kindergarten, and I feel like we're coming out of a a phase and entering a new one just in awareness and words and ideas and feelings. Because, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think with me, a lot of ecological grief that's coming up for me are just worry and concern about the environment and specifically food and sustainability is related to children. And, you know, what am I passing on to them? Um, you know, I feel like I've tried tried my best to help be helpful um, in the last, you know, 20 years of my young adult life, but I'm still so nervous about what the world's going to be like in 2033 or beyond when they are coming out of high school. So just this question of how do we care for ourselves and each other? How do we nurture the earth? These two questions. What comes up for you with those questions? Um,
1: the, f- the first thing I that comes up for me is to like, be in nature even more as much as possible. Uh, just to be with it and to be present. And what a gift that is. Um, and when my daughters are out there, like I'll never forget this moment we've We've gone to harvest nettles every spring together since they were babies. I have pictures of like Gia in her um baby carrier, like the car seat in the nettle patch, well you know she was just in her car seat watching me and little birds were landing around her, visiting with her and now this year. Uh they were out there in the patch barehanded, they jumped out of the truck, walked into the woods, knew exactly where to go and what to do, and were harvesting without gloves on, and I was just like, this is what it this is like my job here is done. <laughs> you know what I mean they know how to do this and they have confidence in it and and then this summer, they spent a lot of time with me teaching, so I was um, I did a bunch of groups, uh, group sessions this summer. And for example, we did an interview for the Seattle Times while harvesting nettles. And I put, I told the girls, they're going to, you're going to be teaching these journalists how to do, how to harvest and what you know about nettles. And they're like, okay, did the same thing. Jumped out of the truck, grabbed their supplies, headed off into the nettle patch, brought Miss Linda Mapes with them told her everything they knew about nettles and how to make them. And it was like, that to me is somehow like makes me feel good. And that we're present and aware of what's in these so-called wild spaces. Um, that's what makes me feel really cared for. <laughs> it like makes me feel like if, if those things were to be taken away or threatened in any way, my girls would understand their role of advocacy and stewardship of those
0: places, and that's really all I can ask for um from them. my girls, I can't get them to touch nettles they they're not interested but... i think it took
1: i honestly, I think it took them watching me since they were born to be able to like this was the year it took so what eight years for them to feel confident enough to touch
0: it, yeah, yeah. Well, I think yeah. I I I just I remember during the pandemic, uh, you had shared something about natural Easter egg dyes. I think you even made a little booklet about it, and shared it, you know, freely. I think on social media, and that that actually was a really special activity for my daughters and I because we actually we went out and gathered things to do that, and um, I think that was one of the times where I. I Kind of just had this moment of like, okay, I need to be doing more of this. I need to be getting them outside and showing them more things, and not just assuming that they'll want to be there necessarily. And somehow cultivating a an appreciation for that kind of awareness.
1: Oh, totally. And you know, we often think like kids don't want to do that; they just want to stare at screens or whatever. And that has not been my Experience at all. And not just with my children, with classrooms that we've taken out. You know, the kids that are like what we call the troublemakers in the classroom or even at risk youth, they're the ones who thrive in these environments. And maybe that's what it's about. It's like the built environment around us is not really serving who these people were born to be. And when we can um, get them in spaces like this and then tell them that, like, the personhood and personality and characteristics of the things around them it's really interesting. And uh, suddenly they're, you know, they're wondering and they're curious and they're sharing their um, thoughts about the phenomenon of nature. And it's just like, how can you not want to do that all day long with, with kids? It's so beautiful. So I think it's just about creating more time and space to be with nature. And it's like our elders always say that plants are our greatest teachers and they're waiting for us they're just waiting for us to be out there and be with them
0: thank you for listening to her deepest ecologies the podcast for more information on our guests please visit the substack page for photos complete bios links mentioned in our conversation and more these interviews were recorded at jack straw cultural center in seattle washington Thanks to sound engineer Ayesha for all of her help. Episodes were edited at my farm in the Skagit Valley Harmony Field.